Welcome to the Rural Sales Show with my dad and host Sinjin Craner. Each week, my dad interviews people who you can learn from like sales and marketing experts, authors and performance coaches to help you and your rural sales team get to the next level. Oh, and make sure you subscribe or rate us on iTunes so you can buy me a motorbike. And now here's my dad. Hey team, this is the last podcast um, we're going to be doing this year in 2022 and it seemed very apt and relevant to talk to my good friend Richard Alderson who's based in England. Uh, Richard has a stellar uh, corporate career, he's worked as CEO of Delaval Tetra Pak, um, he's been at GlaxoSmithKline Glatso, and Boots. He's also working with a significant organisation in the UK which I might be able to put the show notes when it comes to thing, but he is world-class as an adaptability coach. Now, um, what we talk about in this podcast is why adaptability is so more important than change management, and crucially, the limitations and deficiencies of traditional change management in corporations and in businesses. So Richard will share um, his three-step definition of what he means by adaptability, which is curiosity, courage, and velocity. And he'll share with you how to overcome the two big obvious emotional expressions when it comes to change that often confront all of us, which is uh, fear and anxiety. And he'll show you how to manage or most importantly neutralize those emotions so you can actually get your brain turned on so you are thinking. I think this is a very important podcast to finish on for the year because we are in this kind of FUCA world, which is obviously volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So FUCA is an acronym for those things. And <clears throat> the world isn't going to get any easier. It's going to get more and more complicated. There are going to be more and more challenges. The pace of change is never going to stop. They always say the changes are constant. So Richard is definitely the right guy to get on this podcast to help you navigate and be ready for 2023. Um, he compliments all my other guests, um, particularly Mike Aguilero, who spoke a couple of a couple of podcasts ago in terms of that whole mindset and getting ready and resilient for 2023 and whatever it uh, throws at us. Most importantly, before I introduce Richard, I wanted to wish you all a very happy Christmas, happy holiday break with your friends, with your family. And like me, I hope you're really going to be present for your family. Put your phones down. Rest up, recover, relax, have the nana naps, the, the mid-time sleeps, read the books. It's really important you rest and recharge. It's been a big, big year for all of us. Not sure what 2023 is going to throw at us, but um, I'm sure if you're listening to this and even you're taking a little bit, this is going to help you get ready for it. So enjoy this podcast, listen and learn as always, and enjoy what Richard's got to say. Well, listeners, this week we have a very, very good fellow by the name of Richard Alderson. I've known Richard for a number of years. He is a fellow POM, that is an Englishman, which already makes him an awesome human being, uh, just like me. Joking. Um, and Richard is here to talk to us about the whole topic of adaptability, which seems to be a very pertinent and relevant topic for ending the year on. And we're going to review that with Richard. We're going to unpack. We're going to send you uh, to a place where you can find his ebook, which I've read, which is very, very good. Um, but anyway, Richard, I think we should welcome you onto the show and um, introduce yourself to the listeners so they know who you are and what you're about. How does that sound? Sounds good. Um, hi, Sinjin. Very good to see you again. And uh, thanks for having me on. Um, very excited to be here um, and a little bit nervous. Um, uh, about me, well, you and I met um, when I was, well, I spent a decade working in the uh, dairy industry, um, started out in Sweden, uh, had the good fortune to move down uh, to New Zealand, sunny Hamilton, uh, lived there for, for nine years, uh, heading up um, a, a local division of a, a big dairy equipment um, operator. Um, so, yeah, I, I've kind of worked my way up. I started in pharmaceuticals, started on the shop floor, packaging strepsils on the night shift, um, ended up sitting on the board of an NZX-listed company, a small company based down in Nelson. Um, and uh, I suppose what I realized on my journey um, from the shop floor to the boardroom was that irrespective of 
what your background was, how old you were, uh, what experience you had, what your job title was. Most people seem to resist most change most of the time. And that kind of sparked a bit of interest in me because I think I'm certainly not unique, not at all, but but a little bit rare maybe in that I really enjoy change. Um, and, and I tend to be able to see even negative change most of the time as an opportunity to make a positive difference. Um, so I could have carried on kind of, you know, having got to being a kind of middle order batsman CEO, I, I could have carried on in that vein. That would have been the safe, sensible thing to do. Uh, <laughs> but then I thought, actually, what about if I was able to help people enjoy change as much as I do? Because here's what I figured and what I, <laughs> you will be familiar with every day of your working life. Um, as will we all, I suppose, which is that the amount of change that we're going to go through in our lives is only going to get more and more, not less and less. So if you don't like change tomorrow, then you're probably going to enjoy life a little bit less uh, tomorrow and the day after. And that that seems like a one-way ride. Um but actually, there is something you can do about it, and 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 change adaptability isn't isn't a gift. It is actually something that you can learn. So about eight years ago, um, sitting at home uh, in in Northern Hamilton, I, I figured out that actually this is pretty much what I should dedicate the rest of my life to, um, helping people enjoy change as much as I do, and and that's what I've done. Um, I've, uh, unfortunately I, I, for family reasons, I had to head back to the UK, um, but, uh, took the business with me, at least doing the kind of consultancy work that, that you and I do, it's completely portable. So, um, so yeah, I've, um, I've, I've been, been running my own, uh, adaptability uh, practice for about the last eight years and, and helping out just the fan- fantastically wide array of of organizations i don't quite have the focus that you have sinjin I, I i i i um i hit a barn door i work with banks and it companies and health service providers and chemical distribution companies and all sorts of things i did a keynote to a pharmaceutical company in in germany a couple of months ago so um it's a it it's it's a really wide varied wherever you go you come up with the same issue, which is that there's a huge amount of innate resistance that most people have, which is entirely natural, and maybe we'll get into that. But um, yeah, so that's it's kind um, of that's kind of my story. That's that that that's a, we, we might talk about how you and I met, although <laughs> perhaps we shouldn't because it makes you look good. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not here to talk about me. Uh, listeners more than here enough of me. Listeners, what I will do is I paint a picture. When I was back um, seeing my lovely mum on farm in the UK, I think it was back in April, I said to Richard, who I kind of call Ricardo, I just make up names for people. It's just a sign of affection because you can't make up your own nickname. And I met him at a pub that I used to underage drink at uh, next door to my school, Newport Grammar, which is a cricketer's arms in Clavering. And I cocked up because there are two cricketer's arms. One of them is Jamie Oliver's ex-place and then the one near me near my school. So Richard said, I'm at the, I'm at the cricketer's arms and I got completely the wrong pub. So we managed to screw away and we sat out there in, I think, a fresh 10 degree um, centigrade and uh, Richard was getting cold and I wasn't. I, God knows what reason. I think I was acclimatizing. And we had a bloody good chat. And I've always been fascinated by you, Richard. I mean, obviously, I revered you when I had the privilege of working with you um, as an agency guy, as your marketing guy um, at uh, – at Delaval, and then we carried on. We've had the conversations, and we blogged, and we swapped, and it was awesome to see you. Mum's actually got a couple of books. I need to get you up the road because um, you you don't live far away from where I went to school, which is awesome. So that was a really awesome trip down memory lane for me, and it was so good to see you. So I'm sure I will see awesome. you again when I get back over there um, in 23. But Richard, what we want to talk about is. I want to unpack this thing that fascinates you and why I've been so looking forward to talking to you is around unpacking this whole concept of change. Because when I read your ebook, which you kindly passed on to me, um, there's, there's a couple of things that are in my mind here. The first one is that beautiful quote by Eric Shazinki, the US Army general. And he says, if you don't like change, you'll like irrelevancy even less. But the funny thing is, 
that's a that's one of my favorites uh but there's many quotes and there's a lot of words and wisdom in in quotes but my second thing is this whole concept of change and why us humans resist it because you know i love my psychology and we train our rural sales teams and our sales managers on it and it gives them a superpower for you why are we playing king canute with change when we know change is a constant what's going on there can you can you unpack it for listeners like why have you said in your ebook you know um you know you sort of say that change management doesn't change behavior let's start there how does that sound okay yeah this is this is a favorite for me you know i've i've lived all, all my working life in big corporations until I set up on my own, you know, I'm a big, big corporate guy. So I know how, I know how to do things properly and right and, and very process driven, very structured, but best practice. You know, I've been trained in lean six Sigma and all that good stuff. And, and I know, and, and there's, there's lots of um, history over the last 30 years to say that change management is the best way to make sure that your project management works so about 30 years ago, um, it was realized that if you only look after the hard stuff of a project, you know, the milestones, the deliverables, the budget, the scope, um, uh, then uh, you, if you forget about the people, who knew people can hold up projects? So that gave birth to change management, which basically looks after the people. Um, and it, it sounds like a very good touchy-feely way of getting projects over the line. And the statistics are there to back it up that it does. But there's a problem. Change management is linked to project management, which is a very logical, linear, process-driven way of working. And, and our brains just don't work that way. And what I concluded, because I've been a change manager, I've been a project manager, and, you know, latterly, as I climbed the ladder, I became a project sponsor of a few things. I've been on some major projects, you know, three-year projects, closing dozens of factories, uh, putting new IT systems into multiple sites across the world. And one, one thing I realized was that change management is really good at changing what people do, but it's really not very good at changing how they think and feel about change itself. It doesn't change their attitude to change. All it does is it herds them from one field to another field. It allows, it allows them to, to be shepherded. It, it allows them to listen to the dogs um, and, and take them through the gate into the next uh, paddock. But what it doesn't do is it doesn't make them love the idea of being herded into the next paddock after that. They don't like the idea of that any more than they like the idea of being herded from this paddock. Um, and, of course, by definition, it only prepares you for planned change. Now, do you see the problem here? We're living in a world that is becoming more and more unpredictable, this VUCA world that people talk about, volatile, uncertain uh, complex and ambiguous um and the world is changing in ways that we can't predict i've just i've just put a um blog out on linkedin that says what on earth went on this year this year was supposed to be the year that things calmed down after two years of mad covid um and and look what happened particularly here in the uk you know, we, we took uh, an entire summer to elect uh, a, a prime minister who didn't last more than half the autumn. We've got a war in, in Ukraine. There's all sorts of things going on that we nobody predicted. And if they did predict it, they didn't do anything about dealing with it, or let alone preventing it. So there's all sorts of more and more unplanned change. Who would have guessed in 2019... That we'd be looking back over the last three years now going, you know, WTF. Nobody saw any of that coming. And we can only assume, well, you'd be pretty rash, I say, not to assume that more and more of that is coming. So change management isn't going to help you at all because that's only going to prepare you for a project. And projects take time to plan and resources to marshal and to do all that good stuff. What you've got to develop is a mindset. In your brain, not something on a Gantt chart with a 
critical path analysis that is all carefully worked out and algorithm to the nth degree. We've actually got to have a mindset that has three things. I define adaptability according to three things, and you won't find these in the Oxford English Dictionary. If you look it up there, adaptability is just defined as uh, the ability to adjust to new conditions, which is brilliant, and who would ever argue with the OED? But it's not very useful. So what you, you need three things, and, and you don't necessarily need any of these to get through a project. You need curiosity. You don't need curiosity to be herded from paddock to paddock. You've got to have courage. No, you don't need courage to be herded. You just need to um, react to your fear. Um, and you've got to have velocity. You've got to be able to pivot at the right time and, and turn on a sixpence or whatever your local historical currency is and to make sure that you you are heading off at a tangent into the unknown, probably not with all the information that you need because it's not going to be the nice ordered world of a project. But if you don't do that, you're either going to miss the opportunity or that threat is going to bite you in the bum. 100%. I mean, what you're saying there is it's like ready, fire, aim. You know, like, you know, oh, no, no, I've got to get everything lined up, Richard. I've got to get everything lined up and uh, get all my ducks in a row. Um, I remember working for an organization. I won't mention who it was when I was on the corporate side, not to your giddy heights, but my sort of middle middle marketing management, brand management roles. And they said that they proudly announced this. You'll find this hilarious. They said, Sinjin, we're, we're – um, we're always we're not um, first to the party, but we're always best dressed. I said, "Here's the problem, guys." I said, "The party's pissed off and packed up by the time we get there." So for, we're not first to the party, but we're always best dressed. And it's like, yeah, oh my goodness. And so, yeah. like fighting with that kind of mentality. So there was a lot in there around those three things of curiosity, courage, and velocity. And I love. I love the little voice you put on for OED. It's, it's, it, I love it. It's very cute. So, like, what we want to talk about here is let's ground it in some pragmatism because that's some good macro stuff there. You know these listeners. You know my background, farming background, UK, moved to New Zealand. We've got listeners here who are rural business owners. You've worked in rural agriculture at some pretty, pretty high heights. Um, they're in Australia, they're in New Zealand predominantly, although we're picking up listeners all over the world, which is we're very grateful for. They, they change is a constant. I'm so glad you brought up the VUCA uh, acronym of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. Like it is just not, change is not going to not change and it's going to continue to come at us. And I read your blog, funny enough, over my porridge um, this morning in prep for our our call today, our podcast today. So like, what are these guys and girls that are listening? What do they need to do to make sure that they are not falling down that rabbit hole of change management and the way that you've defined it and it's limiting ways of, it's very project, it's very linear, it's very rational. And of course, when it comes to people, it's complete reverse. How do they, how do they even start? What, where do they go? Look, even even if your listeners aren't living in a world of, of you know, that kind of very formal project management and, and change management, the, the whole point that I need to get across to people is that this this idea of planned change, that, so that there's, there's two ways people deal with, with change. Um, and some of your listeners might be familiar with the, the JDI, um, you know, they'll have had bosses, who, who just shout at you and bark instructions and, and, and act as a sheepdog. Um, you know, there's no planning. Um, it's just do, do it. I've got your acronym there, sorry to interrupt, but I, just do it. I was going to put another letter in there, but I think yeah. we'll, we'll save that. <laughs> J, yeah. JFDI, yeah. JFDI. Yeah, absolutely. But, the, 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 well, the good thing about that, you know, I'm sure we've all had bosses who have tried to invoke change by by doing that. Um, and actually, I talked to the chairman of a New Zealand household uh, high street name that, that all your listeners would know. Um, and I said to him, how do you, my favourite question, how do you prepare people for change? And he said, look, people are just going to have to get on the bus or get off it. 
Now, that's a really nice, simple, straightforward way of thinking. And I'm sure it plays out really well in the boardroom because it's crisp and it's sharp and it's tough and it's walking around in its own cloud of testosterone. <laughs> the trouble is that some people uh, will get stay on the bus and get on the bus and stay there who shouldn't be on the bus. And, and other people who you really want to keep are going to go, well, if this is going to how you, gonna be how you treat me, I'm off. Um, so that doesn't work. The, the great thing about JDI is that you don't need to do any planning. Uh, it doesn't cost very much. Uh, so it's got lots of things going for it if you're a kind of short-sighted leader. Um, and as the, the old head of ICI, um, oh, gosh, his name's completely gone out of my head, um, said, you know, the, the, the great thing about not planning is that failure comes as a complete surprise. <laughs> um, I love that. You know, that's that's kind of how these people roll. So the idea is, even if you're not living in a highly regulated, process-driven environment, the idea, the point I'm trying to get across is that we've got to develop a mindset. Everybody in the world, it doesn't matter what you do, is going to face more and more change. Look at what the war in Ukraine has done. To all of us, it's affected everybody's lives. Look what COVID did; it affected everybody's lives. This is not this is not just if you're in a high powered job that you're going to get affected by change. We all have known over the last three years. Nobody can deny that we are all living in a world where we are all affected by change. And if you don't get that message, if you haven't felt it, then I don't know how you're breathing with your head that far into the sand, mm. right? So, what we've got to do is figure out, that's all very well, your listeners will be saying, okay, I need this mindset, but how do we get this? You know, And it's not just a question of saying change your behaviour because that's the hardest thing to do in life. Mm. So what I realised was that, and I never expected to, to go down this kind of mental health and wellbeing route. Duh. People who work for me will tell you that's not the kind of you know, touchy-feely guy that I was. But I worked out pretty quickly when I started doing my research into the a bit of the psychology and neuroscience of this stuff is that you can't really have a conversation about change without talking about the two most emotional responses or, or what you would say, because I know you make that de delineation, that, that difference, which is quite right. It's a reaction, not a response, yes. is fear and anxiety. Mm. You, you cannot talk about, you can't talk to your people and you can't talk to yourself about becoming more adaptable unless you understand what emotions it is that that change is driving you. And mm. the, the, the two most prevalent ones are fear and anxiety. And I, I'm happy to admit that, you know, when I was a CEO, uh, I certainly didn't talk nearly enough about fear at work. We're afraid to talk about fear at work. I'm delighted that there seems to be more and more momentum gathering about being open and talking about anxiety in society. In Western society, it's becoming more and more acceptable now to talk about that stuff, but still not nearly enough. When you look at how many how prevalent anxiety is um, as a mental health issue, mm, and, mm. and then when you think about what it's doing to your productivity, to your engagement, to your love of life, um, then that's what that's kind of why I do what I do because so much in our lives we're, we're feeling hemmed into our comfort zone, which isn't necessarily a place we want to be, but we don't go beyond there because we're afraid and we're anxious about what might be out there. And just imagine if we weren't. Imagine if we knew how to control our fear and manage our anxiety. What kind of life would we lead then? And here's the thing, you can learn to do both those things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, and that's, what, that's what gets me leaping gazelle-like out of bed in the morning mm. um, to, to come and, you know, talk, talk to people like you and, and, and clients and, and, frankly, people at bus stops, anybody who will listen to me. <laughs> Look, I'm, I think uh, what we're picking up here is that change management is like I think you defined it very, very well early on, is it's about the hard stuff. 
Now, the hardest stuff is the soft stuff, the emotions, the fears, the anxieties. You know, for me, I remember whenever when I was working in corporate land and agency world, we had to change desks. It was the hardest thing to get people to do. No one wanted to change where they were because change extracts a huge cognitive load and effort because basically changing your just a simple thing of like changing your desk and you need to move to somewhere else. You move to the next floor, or you lose your corner office or your window or your light. People get really, really anxious about that. So, you know, when you're then thinking about change at a bigger level is you've got to unpack all this stuff. It's like, what is the emotional journey that our people are going through? Are we emotionally fluent? If that, if there is such a word, have we got that emotional intelligence to actually tap into understand and use those emotions as a strength rather than as a weakness. What do you think? Oh, yeah, now you're now you're talking. This is this is when you take all that negative energy and you turn it into something positive. Mm. That's when you've really cracked it. So what what I've learned on my my own, um, you know, I'm not a trained psychologist. Um, I'm actually a biochemist by training. But but what I've learned is that. The, the field of psychology is about 150 years old, and it's only since about the 1990s, even late 1990s, that the concept of positive psychology has really come to bear. So all psychology up until the 1990s was really all about neutralizing a negative. Um, and only then um, did, did Martin Seligman, when he was chairman of the um, American Pharmaceutical Association, mm. did he... Um, bring to the popular conscious mind this idea of uh, positive psychology that actually we're, we're here not just to make feel, people not feel bad but actually we can go one step further and make them feel good and if you can take negative energy and and turn it into something positive then then that's a double whammy right and and in competitive terms Man, that's you've just played your bonus there because if the whole of the market goes into a slump, you know, if the housing market goes into a slump, there are real estate agents out there who are crying, you know, into their beer, woe is me. And there are other ones who are absolutely motoring because they know when the market comes back, which it always will, there's going to be a whole lot, lot less competition there because the others will have gone out of business. That's that's people who can see even negative change as the opportunity to make a positive difference, um, and, and that, that's that's really it for me. That if you can learn to deal with your fear and anxiety, you know that's the that's the neutralizer negative bit. Then, effectively, what you've done is you've got yourself out of your own way, so you can start seeing change for what it really is. And there's another couple of things. There's a couple of negative things, fear and anxiety. The couple of positive things are it is change is the best opportunity any of us is ever going to get to make a difference in the world. Mm. The status quo is never going to give you that opportunity. You, mm. Whatever you did that was special, you did it yesterday. Good, well done, tick in the box. You've made, yeah, you've made a difference. If you only keep on doing the status quo until you retire, um, and 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 you know on, on route to dying well then you've made no more difference well that's if you get only change that's the, sorry jump in but that's the only that's the opportunity if you get to retire probably that choice will be taken away from you because you'll probably be made redundant yeah absolutely yeah uh, if you sit on your hands and hope that you can stay cocooned in your comfort zone uh you, know, you can either embrace change or you will be changed yeah the, so th th there's no other there's no other choice. Um, so not only is it the best chance we're ever going to get to to make a difference. More than that, it's the best chance to find out what we're really capable of doing. Who we are. More importantly, who we could be. Again, the status quo is never going to give you that opportunity. Now the reason. The reason we don't like change is because we have evolved. We are pre-programmed to resist change. And this is where we come right back to, to, to fear. You know, we see, we in default, we knee-jerk respond to seeing change as a threat to our security. And that, that 
kicks in the fight or flight mechanism that everybody will be familiar with. Mm. Here's the thing about the fight or flight. It shuts your brain down from thinking because thinking takes too long when you're facing a saber-toothed tiger. And yes, we've got this brilliant thing up here, the world's biggest supercomputer called the neocortex that could come up with a whole host of absolutely brilliant, well-dressed options um, that, you know, are completely late to the party. Because by the time you've come up with options one, two, and 12, uh, you know, you've you've become lunch. So our brains develop this shortcut um, through the um, uh, the amygdala, the fear center of the brain, to basically shut down all the clever bit of your brain from thinking. So in any situation, you really want to be thinking straight, don't you? Nobody would disagree with that. But the most important time in our lives that we need to think straight and think at our fullest and clearest is when we are being threatened, because that could be life-changing. It could be life-ending. And what do we do at that precise moment? We stop thinking. We stop thinking completely. Imagine the size of the off switch uh, at the back of your brain to shut down that supercomputer. But that's exactly what we do when we face change that threatens our security. And we start doing all sorts of things like writing emails in capital letters or going on the picket line or we just want to punch our boss on the nose or run screaming from the building. And both of those, if you look in your HR manual, are probably disciplinary offences these days. Worked really well out on the savannah 50,000 years ago. Today, not so much. So we have to learn how to control our fear. And then we need to understand that actually there's a difference between fear and anxiety. This was uh, this was scales falling from my eyes when I understood this because we still use both of those terms interchangeably in common parlance today, but they are different. And it's not just an academic exercise understanding that they're different. If you understand they're different, then you know that you need to treat them differently. Right? And I'll, 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 if there's time, I'll give you a couple of your listeners a couple of practical antidotes the thing that's different about anxiety is that it's all in your imagination so we've got two brilliant things going for us the one is that we've got the ability to imagine a future that doesn't yet exist we're the only species out of nine million species that can do that it's an absolutely amazing thing But then we've also got this thing, this self-protecting mechanism like fear called negativity bias, which is why we find it so easy to think about what could go wrong. It's why we find it so easy to bitch about everybody that we work with, because it's much easier to be negative than positive. Now, negativity bias has helped keep us alive as a species. You know, we've outlived things higher up the food chain than us, like the saber-toothed tiger. And imagination, of course, Uh, has taken us on to do brilliant things. It's why, for better or worse, we've run the planet. But put those two things together, and it's a car crash. Because if you've got negativity bias multiplied by a highly active imagination, well, guess where you think your path is going to head? Down and down and down. And by the way, it's going to be exponential. You're going to multiply a negative scenario by another negative scenario, and eventually you'll multiply that by your phone number uh, until you've created a cliff that you're going to end up at rock bottom. Um, and, and studies have shown that over 90% of what we worry about never happens, never comes true. How much effort are we all wasting worrying about stuff that doesn't need to be worried about? Your brain is only 3% of your body weight and it consumes 20% of your energy. So when I say it's a waste of effort, I'm not talking metaphorically. This is absolutely, we're talking joules and calories here that we could be using to solve the problem that we think might have happened in the future, might be happening in the future. So there are loads of things we can do to manage our fear control our fear, manage our anxiety, and then we can clear the decks and then start being really positive about even negative change. And I reckon if you can do that, well, that changes everything, right? 100%. I mean, it's it's sort of 
there is a heap of stuff in there and i love the passion on it as well it's like i was, I was listening to you i was thinking about the the rider and the elephant you know like, you, you know the riding the elephant do you want to explain yeah. it no 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 you go ahead uh, I've, talk, I've talked i'm exhausted i was hoping you were going to but it's all right it's the morning here and it's very late in the evening which we're very grateful for so the rider is your um conscious brain your system one brain and the elephant which is a very big animal that weighs about 400 times more than you is your some subconscious or your intuitive and yeah. the problem is you are trying to ride that elephant and pilot it and get it to go with where you want to go and it's very, very difficult to do that because you're right. Because your amygdala is such the powerful fear center of your brain, you and I have spoken about this heaps when we're caught up. Is it, unless you neutralize that, which is what I love as you paint this picture, <clears throat> is you cannot access higher level thinking and the innovation and the growth and the development and the competitive advantage and then the profitability and productivity gains that ensue from making that change. So, like, for me, it's like also when they talk to the Formula One drivers when they first start, they say, do not look at the fence. All right? They say, do not look at the fence. What happens is they look at the fence because of the negativity bias. This is why we're drawn to the news, because when it bleeds, it reads, right? Because our brains are actively searching out negative, negative news. And this is why I recommend everyone not to listen to the news and be much more selective on the media they consume because of how it's controlling your mind. But the story for another day. But... Richard, what I'm interested in is I would love you to share with the listeners maybe a couple of really practical tools or tips in terms of, because you've done a really good job of defining what change management is and what it isn't. So then we are really focusing on what your your mission in life is, is around adaptability and helping people be ready for change in an effect, highly effective way as opposed to a forced way that ultimately just doesn't get the result. So what are some tips or tricks that you might might have? Okay. Yeah, so there's a couple. Let me give you one each, um, an antidote for, for fear and one for anxiety as well. Okay, so let's come back to that whole, the, the brain the brain shuts itself down. Um, what, what you're programmed to do is run away, neutralize that source of fear. So you, again, you either want to punch that saber-toothed tiger on the nose or you want to run off uh, until you can't see it anymore. Um, and all of that you're doing on autopilot. And right. let's assume in the real world that neither of those – look, if you're down a dark alley, um, you know, with some dodgy guys, then those are still the right things to do. But for most of the fear that most of us deal with in, in our, life, our calm lives, neither of those fight or flight are going to be of any help to you at all. And in fact, they're going to end, land you in more trouble – uh, than, than you started. So what you've got to do is something that's extremely simple to say and very difficult to do. And it's basically doing the exact opposite of what 50,000 years of evolution has done to us. And to switch your brain back on, don't run away from the source of your fear, run towards it. Mm. Um, and I and I do only mean that metaphorically. Don't ever run physically towards physical physical mm. danger. Mm. But what that means is find out everything that you can about that sort of the source of the fear. So at work, let's say one of the worst things that could happen to you, one of the most fearsome things that can happen to you is that you lose your job. So you've been called in, um, and your boss has told you that you, you've lost your job. And, of course, what you want to do is punch him or her on the nose or, or run screaming from the building. But switch your brain on. The antidote is called discovery. Start asking questions. Now, that, questions like, why am I being let go? Um, are there any other jobs that are going? Uh, do I have the skills for those jobs? If I don't have the skills for those jobs, um, are, is it bridgeable? Will you help me get there? What kind of training would you give me? Um, if I am going to be let go, what kind of outplacement support will you give me? Will you personally use your connections, boss, to help me find another job? You're giving me all of this blah, blah about how you're sorry to let me go. What are you going to do to actually help me find another role? Now, the answer to all of those questions might be completely negative. You might not be in any different situation it might be as bleak as your, your, you first jumped to conclude that it was. But at least then, what you've done is you've given yourself time 
time to think, to gather yourself. And what you then know is that whatever the situation is, you now are more familiar with that situation. You're better informed, which means whatever your next move is going to be, it's much more likely to be a better move than fight or flight would have given you. And and it, it, it gives you some control. Frankly, it gives you some self-respect mm. in, in that situation as well. But but the whole idea is completely counterintuitive. The difficult thing with what I'm telling you is you can't practice it. You can't simulate fear until it absolutely happens. And I, I never do that with my clients because that would be unethical. Mm. Um, but put this put these last 90 seconds in the back of your mind and and file them away and when you do find yourself in a position of fear when you feel that fear welling up when you feel your face go red when you when you feel your fists are clenching or or, or your quads uh, tightening um, ready for flight then just turn on your brain actively think i must turn on my brain mm. and, and I, I read a report just the other day that says if, if you can do that for 90 seconds, we, we have this count to 10 thing, right, that we grew up with. Um, neuroscience now uh, says, proves, if you can be calm for 90 seconds, you will be calm. Uh, and then you're going to make the, the, be- the best next move that you can. That is so good. That is such good advice around turning on your mind and then the 90 seconds because I, I – um... You know, I have this too where the kids have done something and if you can keep your head, you will deal with the the situation. You'll control it better. You'll get a better outcome. You've got more self-respect. You don't create the damage and the destruction of a, of a really bad response. And the other thing is what you've said there, and this is really important, is I've read the same research is, and it was explained to me in a slightly different way, is when you are um, – uh, experiencing an emotion, it, you need to flush it through. So if you do not address and label the emotion, and in Richard's, in this case, he's talking around the fear or the anxiety, if you do not recognize it and allow it to pass through you, literally wash through you, and it takes 90 seconds because they've done all, because me and Richard, we read the same stuff, like the MRI and the FRM scans, and they do all the bloods and all the, all the tests, prove that we're not talking out of our back backside series that emotion will then leave you however if you don't address it and label it and recognize it it will ruminate it will recirculate in your system and then you just trigger down and down and down and down and down would am i talking sense am i talking absolute rubbish you are absolutely spot on and before i even read the research about understanding and, and labeling, you call it, absolutely spot on. I I was amazed that the feedback I was getting from clients when I first started rolling out this program was exactly what you've said, that if you know how you're feeling and if that, that helps you understand it, and then that helps you if you've got a range of tools and coping strategies to then deal with that. It's like, it's why I'm so keen that people understand the difference between fear and anxiety, because if you understand whether you're feeling fear, which is your response to a clear and present danger that's actually happening right now, or anxiety, which is your reaction to something makey-uppy that you've imagined at some point in your future, mm. then when you understand that that's how you're feeling, that really helps you put a label on it. And again, putting a label on something gives you a sense of control over emotions that have been triggered as a result of you feeling suddenly out of control. So yeah, labeling is absolutely key to all of this. Awesome. Awesome. I've got a couple more questions because I'm conscious that we're uh, very late in your, your part of the world, Richard. What I wanted to ask you was, I, I wrote about this as a blog or an email, you know, my weekly emails. And I, and I one of my subject lines, because they're always fairly provocative because I want people to click yeah. on them. Uh, is why does it take someone to have a heart attack to start going to the gym? He's laughing. Um, but why is what? Well, do you know, you know what I'm saying. If I unpack it a bit more, just to help everyone, is why do you have to go to such extremism, which is like your wife or your husband leaving you, 
or you're having a serious illness or you're on your third warning because you haven't performed because you're dragging your ass and you're not making the sales calls, you're not doing your prep and you're not following up in my world, my sales world. Why is it that unless humans are taken to the exact ledge of that cliff, that extremism, you know, and, you know, because again, sorry to be greedy, but like we have, I think the stat is about 65% of people that have heart surgery do not change their diet or the habit of their exercise oh, regime. Do you know what? I was just, I was just going to, I was just going to quote that very same piece of research and say to you, it's actually worse than that because even after they've had the heart stat, they still don't change their behavior. And I think, I think it, 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 in part at least, it comes back to this fear of change. Obviously, changing habits we all know is difficult, but then you need to get under the psychological skin of why is it hard to change habits? Because if we're using our rational, logical brain, of course, we would all eat healthily and and, and never have a heart attack. Um, I, I, I really think it comes back to this fear and anxiety that I'm going to have to do something different. And there's all sorts of things in there, which means, well, if I have to change, well, I'm admitting that I've got it wrong all this time. That's one reason why people don't like adopting new IT systems or, or changing their sales processes. Yeah, like, or, you, log, or you, log, you log into a CRM system or Facebook and they, they change the bloody interface or you go to the supermarket and they've changed everything around. Yeah. Like, I do still do my own shopping. And you know, hold on, that was that button was there last time. It's not here anymore. It, it just... Yeah. Yeah, please continue. Yeah, it, it all comes back to the fact that we are pre-programmed to see change as a threat to our security. I think if there's nothing, if there's no other message that, that your listeners take away, it's understanding that it's okay to feel this way, right? Because it's entirely natural. What it's not okay is to live with that and accept that and use that as an excuse to sit on your hands inside your comfort zone it's called a comfort zone for a reason because it's uncomfortable to walk outside of it. But if you don't, you're going to get swept away by the storm anyway. So, um, yeah, I, I just very quickly want to say, because I did promise you uh, two, two uh, antidotes, one for anxiety as well. Mm-hmm. And it's a very simple one, one people will know very well. Uh, and that is mindfulness. And, and, I, and I can see people's eyes rolling into their heads as soon as I say that. Look, if you could see me now, I am not talking to you in soft Californian tones. I am not wearing a caftan. You know, I am from the real world. I was the CEO of a (laughs) a large rural dairy business. I could also witness, but I also want to witness for, because I can see you, is you're not levitating either. So it's awesome. George Harris. Of all of the antidotes and stimulants that help my clients uh, embrace change, for me personally, mindfulness is the one that has worked the most and here's why here's the theory first of all right if you accept that anxiety is about the result of what you think negative might happen your perceived negative future state it's about what shit is going to happen to you in the future the more that you can think in the present the less anxious you're going to be it's that Mm. simple in Mm. that sense mindfulness is the perfect antidote to anxiety. Anxiety is about future projections. Mindfulness is about the exact opposite and about living in in the present. Here's what happened to me, right? When I sit, I left corporate life, sitting in Hamilton, in, enjoying uh, life in sounds New like Zealand. Com- sounds like a comfort zone to me, Richard. That sounds yeah, like- yeah, absolutely. Got it. It was on the Friday, right? I was in comfort zone. I was in CEO comfort zone land. The phone was ringing. I held out my hand and people put money in it uh, every month. Um, You know, I had emails. I felt important, wanted, busy. And then I set up my own business. And on the Monday, I thought my phone had broken because (laughs) because nobody nobody called. And all of a sudden, I had all this time on my hands, all this time that I'd been moaning for the last 20 years that I didn't have. I had, and I didn't want it. But what I did was I managed to to take my own medicine. I managed to be mindful long enough to park all of my business startup worries, leave them in the home office, and do something I'd never done before, which was drive my daughters to school, about a 15-minute ride. And we just enjoyed enjoyed having fun. 
um, mm. and talking about the day and what would, what would happen. And in the way back, I was thinking about them, not work. And when I opened my office door, you know, all of those same problems were still there waiting for me. But what kind of mindset did I then have? What energy levels did I have? Motivation um, to, to go in there and actually, you know, make the phone start ringing. And all of that was because I managed just for half an hour to live in the moment. And 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 if, if any of you listeners are out there going, look, this all sounds a bit airy-fairy mindfulness. There, there is the technical mindfulness that, that's all about, you know, um, meditation and breathing and yoga and all of that stuff that you need to do lots and lots of training for, that I can't do any of that, right? I do informal mindfulness, which is just about living in the moment, living in the here and now, letting go of the past, letting go of the future, letting go of judgment. That's what my kind of mindfulness is all about. And and it doesn't take an awful lot of practice to get there and it yields massive results. And I, I can only thoroughly recommend it to your awesome. listeners. Awesome. And and this is really dangerous to me because I'm going to quote, quote Kanye West now. He In one of his songs... <laughs> You know, you know you're now out of my zone. <laughs> yeah, I'm a boomer. Is um, he says my presence is my present, and so interestingly, I've been thinking about that as you're talking to me about in the next couple of weeks because we're recording this just before Christmas, uh, December 22, and everyone's had a hell of a year. One of the best things I do when I take the kids for a walk or I take the dog for a walk in the local reserve here in in, in my towny life is the phone stays at home. The phone stays at home because it's an addictive dopamine addiction and the phone stays at home because otherwise I'm not enjoying the presence. I'm not enjoying the nature. I'm not listening to the trees. I'm not watching the kids. I'm not enjoying it. I'm not fully present. And this this distraction, we're running out of time, but this distraction, noise, buzz, continue, it just absolutely erodes us. So I implore people to hear what Richard's saying around me and Richard are cut from the same cloth. It's not yogi pants and California and 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 levitation and an airy fairy clappy kind of stuff with some whale music in the background this is simply about being present and suspending your judgment about what's happening in the past what's happening in the future just focus on right now my god the energy you know even i would just go for a walk for an hour and you know me i'm busy i'm intense brain's always going always thinking man it's great it's the same when i swim right i swim at the local pool here we have an outdoor pool that's finally open and um i'm the only idiot in there when it's raining because it's been raining forever and it's a mindfulness for me in my own way and people go syndrome what do you think about because i swim you know a few lengths and i just go nothing <laughs> i think about nothing if i do think about anything it's like 22 23 24 and there's literally a number hanging over me as i do my lap and i don't think of anything else which people might find kind of interesting because they know what i'm like because i'm full on and i read and i'm intense and i'm, and I'm driven and ambitious and all that kind of stuff but the, the mindfulness i think the way richard's defining it is a much more pragmatic grounded way of doing it but richard i think we we need to respect your time it's getting late in your in your day we're coming up to the hour um i really love how you've answered around this this fear and anxiety response to people why they won't change and it's funny right circling back to what you said at the start is if people don't have a good enough reason internally for themselves to change they won't change like if change is forced upon them as you say in change management they simply won't do it they will resist or they'll you know they'll persist and and maybe those aren't the people that you want on your bus so you know us humans have a great problem doing what we don't want to do and you know this, and I know this in psychology, we saw in COVID, is when our respective government said these magic words, uh, don't panic by. So we had reactance theory, which is very posh terms for we reacted and we resist people making change for us. So we have to, I imagine with your adaptability stuff, you are unearthing the real reasons once you've neutralized that fear and anxiety, why people will want to move forward and what that opportunity and that development and that growth represents. Would that be right? Yeah, absolutely. Because look, we're all going to be dealing with change that's unwanted, unplanned and unavoidable uh, in our lives. Accepting good change, of course, is easy. Um, but there's loads of shit coming towards us. We're all going to have 
the loss of loved ones. We're all going to, you know, our careers aren't going to go exactly the way we want. We're all going to deal with difficult stuff. Uh, and the difference will be, do you have the adaptable mind to take that on board, have the curiosity to find out what's going on, the courage to make a change and the velocity to turn quickly enough so that you can either manage that threat or, or make the most of that opportunity. Um, and and if you can do those things, then it doesn't matter what life throws at you because you will you will have the confidence that you can face an uncertain future knowing that you can do the best that you can do, which is probably going to be good enough. Yeah, 100%. Love that. And, and the fact is the tools that you've shared with the listeners there, they are very much tools that help you control a situation perhaps that you don't think you can control. And we know good farmers and good people generally control the controllable. So like, look at what you can control. And Richard's what he said there is how he defines adaptability is first of all, the curiosity. Like, you know, for me, when, when COVID hit and we were sent to our garages, like I was, the, the thing I wrote on my board was, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? How can Spot I become on. better than this? And that kept me going because I am a very gregarious guy. I like social I like hanging out with Richard in English pubs next to a cricket, uh, next to a cricket, cricket green, right? So you know that. And then the courage to take action. And the other thing, one of the best advices I got is instead of being acted upon, if you don't take action, you will be acted upon. And then the other one is then the velocity that you talk about. So there's three things here Richard's talking about. So curiosity, courage, and then velocity is once you've decided it and looked at it and got, got some sense and control of the situation – because you neutralize that fear and anxiety, you then have to take the courage like Richard has to move from a very well-paid, big corporate CEO gig doing his own thing, which I've got massive respect for you, Richard, because you have big kahunas to do that. A lot of people won't do that. I've done it as well, not not to your giddy heights, but I left a very, very well-paying job. And oh my goodness, I had the same jump. But then the third one is around the velocity is then when you do it, you commit to it fully and you go at it and you just get it done. So yeah, you just you do JDI, you just fucking do it. So Richard, absolute gift. Um, where where can people connect with you? Um, we'll put in the show notes link to your ebook because I think this whole fatigue of change management that's been bandied around for thirty years you are you are challenging it, you are disrupting it. Where can they find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you if they go? I like this guy, I like what he's about. Sure. So um, the the uh... The, the company I run is called High Performance Change. So just look up highperformancechange.com. Um, Rich Alderton um, on LinkedIn, uh, you'll find me. Uh, if you get onto the website, there, there's a page there that'll pop up if you want to download the ebook. Um, and all my contact details uh, are on a page at the back there. So Beautiful. all good. You know how you thought I'd let you off the hook? I just thought of one more question. <laughs> now I'm nervous. No, I'm nervous for myself. Um, can you give me a couple of examples of where, because you know how I always use my notes, not. Um, can you give me an example of where um, you have seen companies that have adopted adaptability and have excelled, and then maybe a company that hasn't adapted adopted adaptability and failed so one example where they've excelled excelled positively and grown and one that has failed and fallen or disappeared or died have you got a couple of examples because i think you had some in your ebook so there's a really if, if you download the ebook i spout uh, about a whole load of research that that wasn't done by me it was done by a boutique consultancy called cognosis in, in london um, and they piggybacked on a whole load of data uh, that was produced by the Sloan School at, at MIT. Mm. Um, and basically what Cognosis did was they looked at the performance of 100 companies, uh, 100 big companies, uh, mainly American. Um, and what they did was they, they asked the employees, they got Glassdoor surveys of over a million employees, 1.2 million employee surveys they looked at and said, which is the um, characteristic, the, the cultural trait, the driver of behavior that most defines this company that you work for. So this wasn't bullshit PR from the, the, yeah. from the, from the CEO. This was what was actually perceived to be going on in the ranks. 
uh, and nine drivers of behavior came out, including things like innovation and um, diversity and, 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 and adaptability came out as the number one uh, cultural trait that drove uh, revenue uh, and uh, ROI. Uh, the, the, I've never seen a report that demonstrated such a brilliant uh, connection between such a soft skill as adaptability and delivery to the bottom line, right? Why am I telling you about this research? To answer your question, one of the top companies that came out in that um, uh, survey was Netflix. Um, mm. and, and when you look at where Netflix started, you know, they were a direct competitor uh, to Blockbuster. They were pretty much doing the same kind of thing. That um, they started off selling DVDs, I think, uh, as well. They did. They didn't immediately launch, but they adapted. They adapted very quickly, um, and yeah, you know, obviously, yeah. You know, the rest, the rest is history. Now, of course, Enron, uh, uh, they, uh, Netflix have had some some issues lately, but they seem to be winning subscribers. They're, they're, they're going to adapt. They will adapt. It's they're born yeah. of adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you if you want a, another classic example of where companies haven't adapted, haven't adapted their culture, uh, you, you know, just look at the celebrated case of Enron, um, because they had a company culture that was clearly toxic. Everybody knew it was toxic. Um, and and the, the, the reason that it went under was because of the culture that that um, proliferated all of this poor decision making. Um, and, and nobody, nobody stood up and said, this is the emperor's new suit. We are heading for the end of the cliff here, the edge of the cliff here. And nobody dared to say anything about it. Um, and and, and well, you could say the same about most of the big banks in the GFC of 2008, um, you know, and Lehman Brothers being case in point. Mm. But the, these, are, these are proof. These companies are proof that you can become very, very, very successful, and then fail. And possibly the best example of all, and the most worrying for us all, is Nokia, because mm -hmm. Nokia, Nokia's uh, history was, as most people know, they started out in pulp milling. You know, they, they up, up in Finland, they, they, they were buried in trees, um, and they reinvented themselves several times before they become the world's leading. Uh, mobile phone. They had a forty-nine percent market share. Imagine if they had a forty-nine percent market share today. What size of company they would be? Because today, Apple and Samsung together don't have forty-nine percent. It's absolutely mind-blowing. And what they did was they made all their money because they were brilliant at making handsets. They were good at the hardware. But even after Apple launched the iPhone in two thousand and seven. Um, and proved that the market was only really interested in the software, the apps. And as long as, you know, it, you could hold it in your hand and it had some kind of beautiful simplicity, all of these geeky gimmicks of hardware, people didn't care about those anymore. Nokia had two things going for it. The first was it was good at hardware. The second was it was highly adaptable. They backed the wrong horse. They forgot how to be adaptable, even when the market said, you need to change again because it's not about hardware anymore. They clung to that rock of hardware. They, they'd obviously risen far too high. They were at too high an altitude to jettison themselves and, and change again. Their risk, appetite, whatever, had completely evaporated. They stopped being adaptable and they stopped being pretty much as a company, although they still just about exist today. Great examples, great examples, great examples Richard. And I think what we'd say is, as we head into 2023, our favourite friend, our FUCA um, acronym of volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity, it, it ain't going anywhere. And I think what Richard's imploring people here is to think about forgetting change management, which is the hardware, and look at adaptability, which is the software, which is where there the people go. are and where the emotions are and where the real currency, the real competitive advantage that you can have. Because, Richard, it's an absolute pleasure chatting. I always love learning from you. And um, I'm really, really pleased to have you on the show. And obviously, we will direct people in the show notes to your 
to your goodies and all your resources. So, mate, it's been it's always good to chat. Always so much fun connecting with you. I'm genuinely honoured to have been invited on. Um, you, you're you're a good man, Sinjin, and you do great things. And uh, uh, you, you are an inspiration. Um, I often think about the the blogs and posts that you write. I know I use them. Uh, they really work for me. Awesome, mate. That means a lot. Keeps me writing, um, and I will continue to write. And uh, I'll continue to learn from you on the adaptability because you've got certainly this is a real space that I think the whole world really needs to get their heads around because it's just something we can't ignore. And, and you know, the change management of old that's being peddled, it's just not going to work anymore. And so that's why I was absolutely fascinated to have you on. So Ricardo, Richard, Ricky, I'm, I don't even know your middle name, but um, it's been a pleasure, mate. And I, can't, you now. and I can't wait to um, buy you a beer at the Cricketers Arms in, in some English summertime um, to the sound of Willow. Looking forward to that. Awesome, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Hey you, hope you enjoyed that episode and you learnt lots from it. It takes a wee bit of work to get these wonderful guests onto the show who share their knowledge with you freely and generously. So it kind of makes sense for me to ask you a tiny, tiny small favour in return and that is to ask you to rate, follow, subscribe or share this podcast whenever you get time with friends, family members, colleagues, neighbours or anyone in your network you think might benefit from it. The reason for my request here is a simple one, and it's because I'm on a mission. And that mission is to elevate and improve the world's perception of rural sales reps by sharing more effective sales and marketing strategies so we get you and them the results and respect that you all deserve. The thing is, I can only do that when you can help me get this podcast out to a bigger audience. And that's the reason, the whole reason I created this podcast in the first place, which is to help you guys. So as you know, I've got nothing to sell you here. I don't include any of those annoying ads that affect your listening and learning experience. So I just want to thank you for sharing the show. And more importantly, thank you for investing your time with me. Appreciate it and appreciate you.